Should we try that once more with feeling? Good morning, everybody. <laughs> Love it. Yes. Welcome to the eighth and final session in our marathon, the Early King series. I don't have a working clicker. It is turned on, yeah. It was working earlier on. If you just reshow it, Richard. Go live again. It knows it's the last one and it's playing up. My deepest, humblest thanks to Richard, who has been an absolute star throughout this whole thing. Thank you. Okay. Turn to your Bibles. We're in 1 Kings, and we're going to pick up right at the end of chapter 2 to go through a few things. <coughs> Don't forget your just one thing. It could be from this morning. This morning you have the luxury, should you so wish, to choose from the whole series. See what you come up with. Okay. 1 Kings. Where am I backing? 2. And verse 46. Last time we left the king who had dealt with the horrendous problem of his brother Adonijah. Do you remember? Who was aiming for the throne. And he'd removed this strongest rival to his kingship. But, yeah, 246. one of those mornings, isn't it? It's going to be good. Yeah. But basically, um, the word tells us that the kingdom had been established in the hand of Solomon. The word established is a Hebrew word, kun, which means perpendicular. Oh, I'm taking you back to maths. Perpendicular means right angles to a straight line. In other words, it was time for Solomon to stand up tall and straight, and that's what he needed to do. Kingship. We've done a lot about kingship, haven't we, in the last eight weeks? Interestingly, those of you who have access to the Life Application Bible in any form, the profile note said this, and I thought it was worth quoting. Quote, wisdom is only effective when it's put into action. Early in his life, Solomon had the sense to ask for wisdom, but by the time Solomon asked for wisdom, he'd already started a habit that would make his wisdom ineffective for his own life. He sealed a pact with Egypt by marrying Pharaoh's daughter. She was the first of hundreds of wives. Ouch. Married for political reasons. In doing this, Solomon went against not only his father's last words, but also God's direct commands. His actions remind us how easy it is to know what is right and yet not actually do it. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. He's known for his wisdom. And we're going to find out a little bit more about that as we go through today. But who was this first wife? She was the daughter of Pharaoh, of all nations, to go to choose a wife. He goes to Egypt, with a huge history for the nation of a place you never go back to. Yes? But he chose to go there. Now, it was a time, culturally, 
when marriage with royal families were made for the importance of alliances. Now, it's not that long back in British and British Empire history that that was a consideration. You know, Victoria's endless children, who were they going to be married off to? But this was very, very significant. Now, can you see that? A lovely film. Yul Brynner on the right. I don't know who the lady on the right is portraying this wonderful wife-daughter of Pharaoh. But it was a magnificent occasion. They were trying to ally two great nations. But his relationship with foreign wives was going to become really problematic for him. Why? Because it became an inroad for pagan philosophy and practice. Yeah? Eventually, these wives brought Solomon down. Now, let's have a few points to ponder to start off with. How easy is it to minimize religious differences? Oh, now there's a question for our time, isn't it? In reality, it is very difficult because, and I put this out, I don't have an answer to this, so this is one you can chew over. When does tolerance become acceptance? Yes, do you understand? In our current culture, there are those who say, we have to be very tolerant of other faiths in our nation. Well, what does that word tolerant actually mean? My personal belief is that we are to show the love of Christ to people of all faiths. We do not necessarily have to believe what they practice. Big difference. However, when you're talking a marriage relationship, those imbalances can be very profound. Those of you who would know 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Oh, be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. See, the boss knew what I was talking about. Unequally yoked, because one is pulling one way and one is pulling another way. So sometimes we minimize those, say, oh, it'll be okay. But for Solomon, it was not okay. What should be our focus when it comes to religion, especially in marriage? I have counseled, both informally and professionally, many young couples, one of whom is a Christian and one of whom is not. And everything in me screams, wait. I also know of a wonderful couple. She is a consultant, he's a doctor, he was not a Christian, and she told him, I'm not marrying you if you're not a Christian. But she felt it was right to continue the relationship. And actually, he, he was saying, I'm not doing it, I'm not doing it, I'm not. And then he became a Christian. And God revolutionized his life. They've now got a beautiful daughter, wonderfully married. It's great. I'm afraid those stories are quite rare. Yeah? So, the next thing we need to move on to is the fact that at the beginning of his reign, Solomon had a city, he built a palace for himself, and we'll find it in a moment that he builds this temple. But people were still sacrificing at things called high places. Now, what, what's the significance of that? Well, what happened? Do you remember Shiloh? This is the place where Eli and Samuel lived. Well, between that time, and Shiloh was eventually destroyed, and the time of the building of Solomon's temple, where were people going to worship? Well, there was this theory that if you went high up, you were closer to God. Kind of makes physical sense. But actually, as far as their religion was concerned, it became a problem. Because many pagan religions also worshipped high up. And with all that was going on with Solomon and these wives, they were getting confused. Now, Deuteronomy 12 tells us, be careful not to sacrifice your burnt offerings anywhere you please. Offer them only at the place the Lord will choose in one of your tribes and there observe everything I command you. So God is trying to bring this focus back. If that's where you're going to worship, get your focus right. 
But 1 Kings 3, 3 tells us that Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the statutes of his father, David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. Ah, so even the king is sacrificing in something that's been linked to a pagan philosophy. Now, this was really to ensure that these philosophies didn't get a toehold in the nation. But when Solomon the king does it, there is a serious problem, isn't there? Do as I do, not as I say. Do as I say, not as I do. What's going on? Solomon loved God, but the act of worshipping there was actually a sin. So if the king is sinning, we got problems. Now, the interesting thing is that we read that God appears directly to Solomon. Where? Well, it was at Gibeon, one of the high places. So hang on, what's going on here? Let's look at it. 1 Kings 3, 4 to 5. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. That is going to take some time. Yes? At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon when? During the night, in a dream. Let's pause there. In a dream, at night. Even though it's one of the high places, why would God agree to appear to Solomon there? It would seem that God is not condoning the sacrifice so much as honoring his prayerful approach. Solomon's doing the wrong thing in the right way. Yeah? Anyone ever felt guilty of that? Good intentions. He really wasn't listening to the law of God on this one. And what does God say to him at that point in the last bit of verse 5? He appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream and God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Whoa. That is an enormous question, isn't it? Solomon gives an incredible answer. Let's go through some of what he did. First, he acknowledged that God had been kind to his father David. He then acknowledged that David had been faithful, righteous, and his uprightness as a king. He acknowledged God's kindness to him, Solomon, personally. And he acknowledges God's fulfillment of the promise of a son of David to inherit the throne. Then he acknowledges that being king is a gift from God. Then he confesses his inexperience and immaturity for the role. Yes? Then he acknowledges the importance of the people he serves. And only then does he ask for himself. He asks for a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. Do you know, as prayers goes, that's pretty good as a pattern, acknowledging all that God has done. What is God's response? Let's pick it up in verse 10. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you have asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both riches and honour, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. That was God's answer. I wonder if God offered you anything anything, what would you ask for? And I'm not asking for hands up. 
what would you ask for? It's like, you know, these really naff beauty pageants they sometimes have. And what would you like? And they go, world peace, with a great grin on their face. Which would be amazing and fantastic and wonderful. But I just wonder what you'd ask for. God was surprised at what Solomon did not ask for. Do you remember what they were? Just read them. Long life, wealth, and the death of his enemies. Whoa. That, that would be a really sneaky, nice one to have, wouldn't it? If everyone who stands against me could be, that would be good. Or maybe not. But he didn't ask for those. So God gave him things as well. Now, let's make one thing clear. When God gave him wisdom, it did not mean that Solomon couldn't make mistakes. Oh, he did, didn't he? Yes, he most certainly did. But there is um, a famous saying that with great power comes great responsibility. And unfortunately, Solomon liked the power. He wasn't so good at handling the responsibility. Yeah? But it's one thing to have wisdom. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. Yes? It's one thing to know something. To be wise is to know what to do with what you know. Yeah? Just because you know it doesn't mean, oh, you know, look at me, I am the oracle on everything. No, 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 no. Same chapter. We're still in chapter 3. And we have the very first practical test of that wisdom. Let's read it together. Verse 16 of chapter 3. Now, two prostitutes came to the king. Now, I want you to realize that was in a public arena. Yes? It wasn't sort of they came to him in the middle of the night. They came to him for a ruling on a problem they had. They came and stood before him. Verse 17. One of them said, My Lord, this woman and I live in the same house. I had a baby while she was there with me. The third day after my child was born, this woman also had a baby. We were alone, and there was no one in the house but the two of us. During the night, this woman's son died because she lay on him. So she got up in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while I, your servant, was asleep. She put him by her breast and put her dead son by my breast. The next morning, I got up to nurse my son, and he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning light, I saw that it wasn't the son I had born. The other woman said, no, the living one is my son, the dead one is yours. But the first one insisted, no, the dead one is yours and the living one is mine. And so they argued before the king. The king said, this one says, my son is alive and your son is dead. While that one says, no, your son is dead and mine is alive. So he's just clarifying the problem. Yes. Then the king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword for the king, and he then gave an order. Cut the living child in two, and give half to one and half to the other. Ugh. The woman whose son was alive was filled with compassion for her son, and said to the king, please, my lord, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. But the other said, neither I nor you shall have him. Cut him in two. And the king gave his ruling, give the living baby to the first woman, do not kill him, she is his mother. Oh, clever clogs, yeah? What would you have done, presented with that problem? Gone on Jeremy Kyle. <laughs> we have a go on Jeremy Kyle answer here. <laughs> A DNA test, yeah, a little bit anachronistic. We're not quite there with DNA tests in the time of Solomon years. But it is a serious problem, isn't it? How do you tell the truth? And actually, it was a genius answer, wasn't it? Which one of you is going to actually fight for the life of the child? And which one couldn't care less? I've lost a kid, you can lose a kid. That callous approach. What did the people think? Verse 28, when all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. 
chapter 4 of 1 Kings is essentially a long list of things. And it goes through, I won't read this, but you can read it yourself, to tell us how big the nation was. There's one bit which talks about all of the provisions. Um, Solomon's daily provisions were 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 head of store-fed cattle, 20 of pasture-fed cattle, and 100 sheep as goats, as well as deer, gazelle, roebucks, and choice fowl. Now, it's in your notes, so don't panic about it, but I worked out that this is equivalent to 6,290 pounds of flour a day. That's an awful lot of cake. <laughs> and that's just for one household. So huge. And you sometimes think, why does the Bible give us these really weird details? Well, it's an indication that the nation had great wealth and was very secure. You didn't have to fight for your food. It was in plentiful supply. And the nation had been at war for so long that they may have had certain issues with rationing but not under Solomon, not under Solomon. Now, this is a map in your notes, and we could go into all sorts of things, but all I want you to see is the area in green, got it? Is what is the area roughly of present-day Israel, right? The area in green and yellow was the area of land that Solomon owed. It's about three times as big. The nation had never owned as much land, and it never has since. That's the effect that making alliances had on the nation as a whole. And much of the earlier Old Testament is all about the acquisition of land. Yeah? Okay. The end of the chapter tells us about Solomon's wisdom. Listen to this. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. The author here is trying to describe how much of a clever man he genuinely was. Verse 32 tells us that Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. The only point I want to mention there is that Solomon was a guy who not only built a temple for the people to worship, he contributed extensively to the hymn book. Yes? He gave them a way to worship. And the Proverbs became a very significant part of what he did. Now, I want us to read... Hang in there with me. Chapter 6. Pick it up at verse 2. The temple that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 wide, and 30 high. The portico at the front of the main hall of the temple extended the width of the temple, that is 20 cubits, and projected 10 cubits from the front of the temple. He made narrow, clerestory windows in the temple. Against the walls of the main hall and in the sanctuary, he built a structure around the building in which were side rooms. The lowest floor was five cubits wide, the middle six cubits, and the third floor seven. He made offset ledges around the outside of the temple so that nothing could be inserted into the walls. Verse 7, in building the temple, only blocks dressed at the quarry were used, and no hammer, chisel, or any other iron tool was heard at the temple site whilst it was being built. That's an important verse. We'll come back to it. The entrance to the lower floor was on the south side of the temple and a stairway led up to the middle level and from there to the third. So he built the temple and completed it, roofing it with beams and cedar planks. He built the side rooms all along the temple. The height of each was five cubits attached to the temple by beams of cedar. Verse 11, the word of the Lord came to Solomon. As for this temple you are building, if you follow my decrees, carry out my regulations and keep all my commands and obey them, I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to David, your father, and I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people, Israel. Verse 14. So Solomon built the temple and completed it. He lined its interior walls with cedar boards, paneling them from the floor of the temple to the ceiling, and covered the floor of the temple with planks of pine. 
He partitioned off 20 cubits at the rear of the temple with cedar boards from floor to ceiling to form within the temple an inner sanctuary, the most holy place. Verse 19. He prepared the inner sanctuary within the temple to set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord there, and the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 wide and 20 high, so it's a perfect cube. He overlaid the inside with pure gold, and he also overlaid the altar of cedar. And Solomon covered the inside of the temple with pure gold, and he extended gold chains across the front of the inner sanctuary, which was overlaid with gold. So he overlaid the whole interior with gold. Yeah? Verse 23, in the inner sanctuary, he made a pair of cherubim of olive wood, each 10 cubits high. One wing of the first cherub was five cubits long, and the other wing five cubits. The second cherub also measured this, for the two cherubim were identical in size and shape. Verse 27, he placed the cherubim inside the innermost room of the temple with their wings spread out. The wing of one cherub touched one wall, and the wing of the other touched the other wall, and their wings touched each other in the middle. He overlaid them all with gold. On the walls all around the temple, in both the inner and outer rooms, he carved cherubim, palm trees, open flowers. He also covered the floors of both the inner and outer rooms of the temple with gold. And it goes on, and it goes on. What do you get from that? You're looking blank at me. What is he overlaying everything with? Gold. This is not the tabernacle. This is not a tent. This is a very rich thing. He's using lots and lots of wood, cedar wood, from a, a king called Hiram, king of Tyre. I thought you might like to have a look at what that looks like. Richard, we have a video. It's only a short one, but I found it and I thought it was a lovely video to give you an idea of what this may have looked like. Thank you, Richard. Here we go. Now, there's the horns of the altar that we talked about last week. Where many of the burnt offerings would have taken place. Here we go up the first set of steps. Oh, this... This is called the, the Brazen Sea, which is where a lot of ceremonial washing took place, and there were bulls of bronze supporting it. It was a massive structure. Those were special carts for carrying various things around the temple courts. Again, made of bronze. giant doors at this stage they're bronze but hey we're heading indoors look at that everything's covered with gold this is the holy place where many of the priests would have ministered with the menorahs the candlesticks there we go, the palm trees that we just talked about. You see, the gold is everywhere. Those are the celestial windows. They're high up, so light can come in, but no one who's not supposed to be in there can look in. Great deal of carving. The table of showbread. Yes, one loaf of bread for each of the tribes. There's the altar. The smell must have been absolutely extraordinary. And there we come into the Holy of Holies. The ark is relatively small box in the middle. There it is. And there's these huge cherubims guarding it on either side. 
Only the high priest was ever allowed to go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement. And back out we come. And the whole part of this temple complex was only part of the area where Solomon reigned from. Thank you, Richard. Rather magnificent, isn't it? But I found that and I thought I wanted to give you a sense of the splendor that Solomon wanted to aspire to. Nothing was going to be cheap. Nothing. And I think it, it behoves us to remember that whilst our salvation is free, it is certainly not cheap. Yeah? Okay. Coffee time. And our thanks to the lovely Sue Marriott, who has brought us chocolate brown. Are you happy to continue? Yes? I think it's more a case of you got three quarters of an hour, not me. Not me. Okay. We are nearly there. Nearly there. Solomon has brought the nation to a position of peace. Yes? But it's very interesting. I think it was last week, Nadia said, what place has Chronicles got with Samuel? Yes? Do you remember saying? Now, I have chosen to concentrate on 1, 2 Samuel and Kings. But obviously there are complementary passages in 1 and 2 Chronicles. But probably the most important thing to remember about that is that 1 and 2 Chronicles is biased towards Judah. Yes? Judah, which was the tribe from which David came. And so you need to read it with that kind of thinking that if it's important to Judah, it's probably going to be in Chronicles. Let me give you an example. In 1 Chronicles 28... Verse 2, we are told, King David rose to his feet and said, Listen to me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house as a place of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God. And I made plans to build it. But God said to me, You are not to build a house for my name, because you are a warrior and have shed blood. Yeah? So that was the bias in 1 Chronicles that it was important to have a peacemaker. However, 1 Kings and 2 Samuel tells us that David wasn't going to build the temple because of the problems with Bathsheba. Yes? Same facts, slightly different spin. Yeah? Now, Solomon explained to King Hiram, King Hiram of Tyre, which is in the nation of Phoenicia. In fact, I'm just going to go backwards a bit, Richard, on this to the map. Right. This area here along the coast is Phoenicia. P-H-O-E-N-I-C-I-A. And there is Tyre, which is right on the coast. Twin cities. You'll often hear Tyre and Sidon put together. Yeah? So Hiram comes from Tyre. And the beautiful thing about Phoenicia is that they have a lot of cedar trees. Huge numbers. You've heard of the cedars of Lebanon. That's where they would have come from. Now, Solomon negotiated with Hiram for all of this wood. And I'm not going to go into huge details, but I just wanted to pick out a couple of points. One, Solomon conscripted men to go and work. Now, later on, this became a problem. He was accused of forcing people to work. But actually, at this first stage, he numbered them into 30,000 men, three groups of 10,000. 
and they would go up to Phoenicia and help get the trees back for one month at a time. And then they would come home for two months. While the second group went up for a month and came home for two. And then the third one. So actually, he's got a really good shift system going on to get these trees back to Jerusalem. Shows great concern for family welfare. Do you remember we read that all of the wood and stone was dressed? Yes, at the quarry. What does it, to dress a stone in, in Masonic terms, literally a stone mason terms, I'm not talking Freemasonry, <laughs> stone mason terms, means all of the cuts to make them square blocks, yes? Or rectangular blocks. But it's interesting that nothing was done anywhere near the temple. And you think, that's a bit inefficient. But the reason was they wanted to honour God to keep it as quiet as possible. So they did everything off-site and just transported them and laid them gently and built from that. Interesting, I think. Now, back in 1 Chronicles 28, the complimentary account of the building of the temple, David has told us that he had made extensive plans for the temple. Let's just pick it up in verse 11. 1 Chronicles 28. David gave his son Solomon the plans for the portico of the temple, buildings, storerooms, upper parts, inner rooms, and the place of atonement. Now look at verse 12. He gave him the plans of all that the Spirit had put in his mind for the courts of the temple, etc., etc. So the Spirit has given David blueprints, yes, for how it was to be made. It goes on about all the weights of the gold. Verse 19, same chapter. All this, David said, I have in writing from the hand of the Lord upon me, and he gave me understanding in all the details of the plan. Wow. And yet he's not the guy who ended up doing it, is he? Sin costs. Now, he could have been really, really angry. Said, oh, okay, Lord, fine. Let Solomon do it. I'll just take a back seat. Go on then, you're so wise, get on with it. Yes? Oh, how I would have been tempted to do that. Wouldn't you? I had all those blueprints, and now I can't get to do all the fun of seat. No. Is that what Solomon did? Or David did? No, it's not. He not only willingly gave Solomon the plans, he ensured that Solomon had all the provisions necessary to make it happen. Now, it's one thing to say, okay, I had a dream over to you. It's another thing to say, I'm going to help, but you're going to get the credit. That takes an astonishing person. We're told that David made financial provision for Solomon to do this and also encouraged families throughout the land to add to that provision. I'm a great believer that when you have a project for God, I love it when individuals all put in a bit rather than one or two giant corporations put in half there, half there, and they have control. To do it with individuals means that they own it emotionally as well as put in. That's, that's just me. Okay, let's have a few points to ponder. I wonder how you would feel giving over all your plans to somebody else. God had given him the dream, but I've got to hand it over. What does this action tell us about David? He was very humble. Yeah? He was only concerned that the temple be built, not who built it. Sorry? It's not important who does the job as long as the job gets done. 
It's lovely to say, isn't it? It's hard to do with a heart that's full of grace. But that's what David did. What kind of a father is David now demonstrating himself to be? Good? Bad? Good. Because he's willing to support his son in making this happen. And very publicly, too. Incredible. What was the first part of our comment? Is it too late? Is it too late? Is it ever too late to be a good father? Depends on what's gone before, I suppose. But I think he is trying very hard to understand that Solomon needs help without being necessarily forced into it. I will make provision for you. A good dad will go to extraordinary lengths to try and support their child, yeah? Now, in chapter 8, we have the temple is now finished, and I'm sure if you read your homework, you will know that it's finished. But chapter 8 tells us that Solomon brings the Ark of the Covenant into that temple, into that Holy of Holies, very, very carefully. Yeah? If we've learned nothing in this series, is that you treat the Ark of the Covenant with immense respect. And they got the Ark right into the center of worship. They wanted the symbol of the presence of God to be absolutely central. Yes? There's a lovely verse. Verse 10 of chapter 8. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. I may be more Pentecostal than Anglican, but oh, what it would be like if the presence of the God we worship was so strong that actually the service, order of service, went out the window. Oh, I'm not sure about Okay. I, I have been in some services where it's quite clear that the presence of the Lord just fills a place. And I want to say, who cares? <laughs> just, just be in the presence of God. And Solomon experienced that. That the priests who thought, great, we've got a lovely, shiny, bright new temple. Yeah, let's get on with our stuff. And the glory of the Lord comes down and they can't do a thing. Wonderful. Solomon has an incredible prayer of praise and thanks. Let's pick it up in verse 14. This is how a king prays. He's not appointing a priest to say this. This is what the king says. The whole assembly of Israel was standing there, and the king turned round and blessed them. And then he said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his own hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to my father David. For he said, Since the day I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have not chosen a city in any tribe of Israel to have a temple built for what? My name to be there. But I have chosen David to rule my people Israel. My father had it in his heart to build a temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, because it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well to have this in your heart. Nevertheless, you're not the one to build it, but your son, who is your own flesh and blood, he is the one who will build the temple for my name. The Lord has kept the promise he made. I've succeeded, David, and now I sit on the throne of Israel, just as the Lord promised. And I've built the temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. I've provided a place there for the ark in which the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers, which is the covenant when he brought us out of Egypt. What's Solomon doing? 
He's making sure that people know this was David's idea. Yes? Good. And giving thanks. But what is the phrase that keeps being repeated? What's going to be present in this temple? The name. If you have a name, you have authority. That's what a signature is all about. And he was so concerned that God's presence would be there, but he kept calling it his name. The prayer... Really? Okay, thank you, Bob. That was a comment that there are some Jewish friends of his who only refer to God as the name. The Orthodox Church will not use any of his actual names, will they? There is a huge respect for the actual name of God. There are so many names of God, and many Jewish people will use Adonai. Um, Adonai. Adonai. Yes. Yes. Name represents identity. Absolutely spot on. And if you look through the prayer of dedication, it's a long, chunky one, 8, 22 to 53. Read it and think, how many times does the word the name come in that prayer? Over and over, let your name be here. When this person does this, let your name be here. So the focus is coming back to the temple about the name of God. They then have a massive 14-day celebration because this place is finally up, and it's a big party, yes. In fact, we're told that there were 22,000 cattle as offerings, plus 120,000 sheep and goats. No wonder it took 14 days, yes? Now, immediately after this, God appears to Solomon a second time. Where? At Gibeon again, this high place. The temple was up, working and going. But he goes back to Gibeon. I did a little bit of research on Gibeon. It's an interesting place, not just as a high place, but if you go way, way back in Joshua 10, 12, that was the place that God made the sun stand still. Now, that just speaks to me that this is a place where God can overrule the laws of physics. Yeah? And yes, I do believe that that was a literal thing that happened. I know there have been many articles written on that, but I believe it to be true. So, the second appearance is also awesome. Let's pick it up. 2 Kings 9 and verse 3. Well, let's try verse 1. 9 verse 1. When Solomon had finished building the temple of the Lord and the royal palace, now that was a total of 21 years. It took him 14 years to build the palace, 7 years to build the temple. And had achieved all he desired to do, the Lord appeared to him a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, Oh, ladies and gentlemen, I have an apology. I thought it was at Gibeon. It's as, he, okay, that makes more sense, doesn't it? My apologies. Okay, he appears a second time. Will you forgive me? Yes. Yeah, thank you. I, says God, have heard the prayer and plea you've made before me. I have consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my, there we go, my name there, forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. Isn't that a wonderful promise? As for you, if you walk before me in integrity of heart and uprightness, as David your father did, and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father when I said, you shall never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But, uh-oh. But if you or your sons turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them 
and will reject this temple I've consecrated for my name. And Israel will become a byword and an object of ridicule amongst all people. Although this temple is now imposing, all who pass by will be appalled and will scoff and say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and this temple? People will answer, because they have forsaken the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshipping and serving them. That is why the Lord brought disaster on them. Oh my goodness. That's awesome, isn't it? What we have are a series of conditional and unconditional promises. The unconditional, God will love him, God will put his name there, but the conditional ones is, as long as you follow me. Yes? And if you keep those two words, conditional and unconditional, in your head when you're reading this, a lot of things will really make sense. Now, two very quick things. There is an argument with Hiram, king of Tyre. Remember, this is the guy who supplied all of the wood. And as part thank you for doing that, he didn't get beautiful roses like I've just got. You don't necessarily give roses to a king. Solomon had given him loads of stuff already, but he also gave him 20 cities. Now, those 20 cities were in Galilee. Now, any of you know your maps will know that Galilee is about at the top of the River Jordan. But Hiram was used to living on the coast and fancied having a port on the coast. And Solomon didn't give it to him. In fact, he got so annoyed that he called these 20 towns the land of Kabul, C-A-B-U-L, which might not mean anything to you, but it actually means good for nothing. He didn't like them. And you think, these guys have worked together so much and they brought huge plans to fulfillment. But if you follow the story on, in fact, Hiram did get a lot out of the, the deal. Uh, and there was a lot of trade going on. So it's not as bad as they thought. But it's interesting that these two came a bit to blows. 1 Kings 10, we have a representation on screen of the visit of the Queen of Sheba. Yes? Chapter 10. Let's read a, a few verses. When the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relation to the name of the Lord... Isn't it interesting? This name of the Lord is cropping up over and over again now, isn't it? She came to test him with hard questions. Oh, yeah. Arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had on her mind. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain. Woohoo! Nothing? Nothing. When the Queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, cupbearers, burnt offerings he'd made at the temple, she was overwhelmed. Hey, she likes him, doesn't she? There is a considerable amount of commentary on this, that this woman was the ancestor of modern Ethiopia. Yeah. Interesting. But she had control over a great many of the exotic spices of that region, and she gave loads of them, plus more gold, as if Solomon needed any more gold. But she was one of the first to visit, and over time, many, many heads of different countries came because they wanted to see if the reputation was justified, and they also wanted to form alliances with this guy who was acquiring land at the rate of knots. In fact, 1024 tells us the whole world saw audience with Solomon to hear his wisdom. That's a big statement, isn't it? The whole world. However, it couldn't last. Chapter 11, rather home straight, guys. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women, besides Pharaoh's daughter. I wonder what she thought of that. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. 
any of you who were with us for the Judges series will remember that those were many of the lands that they had fought with. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon had held fast to them in love. Look at this. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. How does any guy keep up with a thousand women? I think, in fairness, most gentlemen I know say they have enough trouble keeping up with one. A thousand. And his wives led him astray. Who did they lead him astray with? Verse 4 of chapter 11. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth. Do you remember that one? The goddess of the Sidonians and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. On a hill, it's a high place, east of Jerusalem, not in the temple, but on a high place, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Now, when we did Judges, we looked at these two, Moloch and Chemosh, yes? We're also told he did the same for all his foreign wives, but these are the two that are mentioned specifically. Why is that a problem? Those two, Chemosh and Moloch, were particularly renowned for child sacrifice. And that, I mean, live child sacrifice. They would throw live children into fire. Yeah, horrible, horrible. Absolutely detestable. And Solomon is encouraging this. Something has gone quite seriously wrong, hasn't it? Is it any wonder that God became angry? Now, I'm not suggesting for one second that this happened overnight. I think it happened over time. And tragically, sometimes sin can creep in in the door, and before you know it, it's a massive problem. And that's what it was. So God pronounced judgment on Solomon. And he said, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Now that son happened to be Rehoboam. And there was a rebellion. One of his commanders, the subordinates, was a guy called Jeroboam. And they had a fight. And during that time, the land, all of that land that Solomon had acquired was split. And in fact, Rehoboam managed to keep the tribe of Judah. And so the Davidic line continued until Jesus Christ. But it was just torn apart because he'd gone after other idols. How did Solomon start his reign? It's good, quite good, yeah? He was a stickler for excellence and, and doing the best. But how did he finish? Way down. I wonder, would you consider yourself to be a starter? Or a completer. I am a very good starter. <gasps> I have to work really hard to finish. <laughs> there was a time when I would just started the craft of cross stitch, and I made my mother a relatively small, about five inches by seven, picture. Um, I, I'd done little key rings before that, and I went for this picture, and uh, John helped me just put it into a frame. And I looked at this, and I burst into tears. He said, whatever's the matter? I said, I finished it. <laughs> He's looking at me as if to say, well, yes. And the problem, I said, when I was in primary school trying to do needlework, 
I had a rubbish teacher and she told me, you will never finish anything. So when I finished it, and I've finished loads of other things since, those of you who know me well will know that. But it, I have to work hard to be a finisher completer. And I think sometimes in the kingdom, we need to recognize that some people start part of a project and some people finish it. Don't necessarily knock someone because they're good at starting but can't finish. Because if something is of God, he will have provided a finisher. Yes? Hallelujah, says Linda. Yes, I'll take that. Yes. But it is possible to be both. It takes time and effort, but you can be both a starter and a finisher. Now, in the final conclusions, I want to draw to you attention. Don't look at it, but I'll tell you, in Matthew 12, 42, Jesus is having some of his regular run-ins with the religious authorities. He makes this extraordinary statement. He commented about himself that one greater than Solomon is here. He said, The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. Who's he talking about? Queen of Sheba. And now one greater than Solomon is here. Now, in hindsight, we know that is true, but think about those who listen to that comment. How dare you put yourself, not just on a pedestal with Solomon, but greater than Solomon, yeah? An extraordinary thing. Now, in this series, what have we learned about transitions? Ooh, they can be difficult, yes. If you remember, way, way back, almost two months ago, we had to move from the transition from the judges through Eli and Samuel as prophets and priests to a very first time they had a king in Saul who went absolutely manic on them to David and then to Solomon. None of them have been easy transitions. I'm grateful to Amanda for getting me a flip chart. So she's listening to this. Thank you, Amanda. How long have we been talking about? Okay, Eli, we've got 40 years. Yeah? Samuel, roughly speaking, as far as we can tell, we're talking 45. Saul is 42. And both David and Solomon reigned for 40 years. I think that comes to 207 years. That's a lot of history, isn't it? And in that time, we've got some of the most major transitions we're ever going to get in Scripture. If all you take away from this series is that God is with you in the transitions, I will be happy. Oh, please, Lord, no. No, no, no. Okay, to avoid our dear esteemed Canon's comment on how much longer our poor nation has to deal with Brexit, may I invite you, together with Angela Harbison, at half past 11, there will be a prayer session in this room for Brexit. Yes? state of our parliament, yes. government and nation and everything. Can I carry on for two more minutes? <laughs> <laughs> Bullet points on screen, oh, yeah. I mean I haven't quite finished. <laughs> what have we learned about kings? <laughs> Pardon? We shouldn't have them. We shouldn't have them. Okay, we'll, we'll tend Prince William that, shall we? Yeah, okay. <laughs> They're human, absolutely. What was God looking for in a leader, especially a king? We're told he was looking for a man after his own heart. Does God use flawed people? Yes. Oh, yes. 
Absolutely. We have learned that it's not just how you start, it's how you finish, that we should aim to have godly wisdom in an increasingly godly world. Because with great power becomes great responsibility. God has given us many things and we have a responsibility to share him in any way we can. Luke 12, 48 says, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. I'd like to finish this whole thing with a song that I learned in my childhood. Love is a flag flying high from the castle of my heart. The castle of my heart, the castle of my heart. Some of you are singing it in your head. Love is a flag flying high from the castle of my heart for the king is in residence there. So let it fly in the sky, let the whole world know, let the whole world know, let the whole world know. Let it fly in the sky and let the whole world know that the king is in residence there. Does King Jesus reside in your heart? And how would someone be able to know if he did? If God is your king, what kind of a subject are you? And I wonder what you're taking away from the whole series. Instead of the just one thing, I want to show you something, another little video. Um, Richard put me onto this, and it's a brilliant... ...way of approaching it. The Bible Project has done that for the whole Bible. So we put the links up on the website, and I'm sure you'll find it a very helpful resource. Ladies and gentlemen, you are dismissed. Thank you for being here. Hope you've had a good time. Take care. Have a great day.